Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. How else could we begin this discussion but with a little afternoon delight? I'm Frank Morano. How many comedy films can you identify with just one line? I mean, think about it, really. How many? And what if the line is just three words? Something tells me, though, if I were to say the words stay classy San Diego or even maybe just the word San Diego, you could probably tell me we're talking about Anchorman. It is hard to believe, but Anchorman is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Why do people still quote it? Why do they still watch it incessantly over and over again? Why do people still impersonate the characters, the fictional characters, at least for the most part, over and over again? And has it really been 20 years? Those are the few uh, those are a few of the questions answered in the new book. Kind of a big deal. How Anchorman stayed classy and became the most iconic comedy of the 21st century. It is a terrific book. It's very amusing, but it's also incredibly informative and insightful. Thus far, my only complaint about it is, at least my copy, is not leather-bound. Its author is Saul Austerlitz, who also is an adjunct professor of writing and comedy history at my alma mater, New York University. Saul, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me. So you begin the book by describing a ritual that you have for your students at NYU where you show them Anchorman at the beginning of the semester. There's a lot of great comedy films, a lot of great films in general. Why do you always show Anchorman? Yeah, I show them Anchorman the first week of the semester in part as a kind of provocation uh, to get them to think about a comedy that, you know, either they've never heard of before or maybe they've heard of and seen and and possibly dismissed as a sort of cinematic empty calories and just getting them to think about all the different ways they might approach it as aspiring writers and critics, whether it's thinking about the movie as an emanation from Saturday Night Live, whether it's thinking about it um, as telling a kind of version of 1970s history or the story of television journalism, or looking at it through the lens of Will Ferrell or Adam McKay, and just getting them to think about all the different uh, tools that they might have uh, to, to tackle the movie with. And you know, I, I know that not just for my students, but for the culture at large, we sometimes have a kind of dismissive attitude to movies that are supposedly just funny, right? That just make us laugh and don't necessarily do much more. And A, I don't think that's usually the case even for those movies. And B, also, I want to, I want to kind of resuscitate 
that idea. I want to I want to push back against that idea that, you know, that a funny movie can be dismissed as nothing more than that. Why'd you write the book for the same reasons? Are you hoping the readership of the book takes those same lessons and has those same thoughts that your students do? Yeah, I feel really strongly that comedy often has uh, important things to tell us about society, about the culture, about what we find funny, about what we take seriously and what we don't. And I think that Anchorman is a much uh, more interesting movie than might have initially been noted by critics when it first came out. And I really wanted to explore it in detail. I wanted to talk about what made it the classic comedy that it was, and also to think about some of the nuances that are hidden under the surface as well. One of the things that you do in the book is you trace the making of the film, uh, even way before pre-production. You, in fact, go all the way back to Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's beginnings on Saturday Night Live. I think most of our listeners probably know who Will Ferrell is. They may not know immediately who Adam McKay is. Uh, Two-part question. One, who is Adam McKay? Just remind the listeners of that. And, And two, why did you feel the need to go all the way back to their origins at SNL to tell the story of Anchorman? Yeah, so Adam McKay is probably best known uh, to your audience as the director of movies like Anchorman and Talladega Nights and Step Brothers with Will Ferrell, and then more recently for um, somewhat more dramatic films like The Big Short and Vice and Don't Look Up. And McKay and Ferrell met on Saturday Night Live. They were both part of the same cohort that came in uh, in the mid-1990s. And McKay became the head writer on the show, and Farrell obviously became, you know, the breakout star of that era. And I thought it was fascinating to hear about the ways in which these two um, young comedians had sort of found a way to each other. McKay had come from the Chicago improv and sketch comedy world, which was a bit more cerebral, and Farrell came from Los Angeles and the Groundlings, which was a bit more character-driven. But they pretty rapidly discovered that they really enjoyed um, writing sketches together. And after a fairly short while, started talking about the idea of, well, what would happen if we tried to write a movie script as well? One of the things I learned in your film is that, or in your book, is that the studios actually passed on Anchorman and were all prepared to pass, but for Will Ferrell. I, I don't know that a lot of folks have an appreciation for how much of a draw Will Ferrell was at that point in time. Tell us about that. After sort of striking out with the first script called August Blowout, which was about used car salesmen in Anaheim, California, the home of Disneyland, they decided to take a second pass and ended up writing a script for what would have eventually become Anchorman. So, you know, the first draft was notably different and had plot lines about plane crashes and cannibalism and orangutans with ninja throwing stars and a lot of stuff that doesn't make it into the final movie. And eventually they got to a script that that people felt much more strongly about and that every time they presented it to anyone, it got a lot of positive feedback. One morning they were invited to a studio called New Regency to have a reading of the script with actors and everyone was laughing and greatly enjoying themselves. And, you know, at the very end, one of the one of the New Regency executives came over to Adam McKay and said, that was terrific. I can't remember the last time I laughed like that on a Monday morning. What a terrific way to start the week. And Adam McKay, you know, still being a little bit naive, perhaps, about how Hollywood worked, said, oh, great. So do you think you might be interested in producing the movie? And the New Regency executive said, oh, no, absolutely not. We could never make a movie like this. Uh, That is uh, that's incredible. And so, you know, 
part of the challenge was that Will Ferrell wasn't yet Will Ferrell. He was someone that people knew from TV, but there was uh, not a lot of guarantee that he was someone who could carry a movie on his own. And, and studio executives were nervous about the idea of a movie where Will Ferrell had the starring role. And it took the release of Old School, um, a movie that Will Ferrell had a kind of large supporting role in that became uh, an unexpected hit in 2003 to really turn that around. People realized, people in Hollywood realized that Will Ferrell was, you know, a big comic star in the making and everyone wanted to be in the Will Ferrell business. And and Anchorman was lucky enough to be a script that was already in the pipeline and and quickly got a, a green light to go ahead to be produced. There are some people in our audience who have not seen Anchorman, but there are obviously many in our audience who have. Uh, question for both of those groups. In your view, as a professional and as somebody that's seen the film many times, what makes Anchorman such a great film? I think it's two things. I think one part is just that it's a brilliant piece of comedy. You know, McKay and Farrell were really dedicated to the idea that they wanted to bring the sketch comedy aesthetic of SNL to feature filmmaking. They wanted to give the actors a chance to improvise and to craft their own lines. And, you know, it's hard to to overemphasize the extent to which this was not the way that movies were being made at that time. You know, it was like the little, the literal definition of setting your money on fire to just have the camera roll and let people play around. Um, but I think it works beautifully. And, you know, Anchorman is not a Saturday Night Live movie in the sense that it's not based on an SNL sketch or anything like that, but it feels very much like the kind of pinnacle of the SNL aesthetic um, when brought to feature filmmaking. And then I think the other part of it and the other reason why it stuck around and, and the other reason that I, that feels significant to me is that it feels like a really stinging satire of misogyny and of kind of workplace misbehavior and really is a kind of Me Too film before we we, we really had the language to describe the kind of behavior that we see in the movie. How has the film aged uh, and why do you think the film has been so durable to an entire generation of audiences? There's a lot of great comedy films which are well received at their time, but they're not necessarily viewed that well 20 years later. How has Anchorman aged? I think Anchorman on the whole has aged quite well. Um, I think that, you know, most of the jokes related to the rivalry between Ron and Veronica or the ways in which Ron tries to kind of humiliate her are very carefully calibrated to make it clear that Veronica always um, wins every battle. She wins every literal physical battle. She wins every metaphorical battle. She always kind of comes out on top. I think some of the jokes haven't aged quite as well. I think that there are some jokes that um, give off a, a scent of homophobia and um, I think those haven't don't don't work nearly as well. And I think they weren't as carefully thought out or carefully calibrated as um, as the jokes about misogyny are. The um, you seem to imply in discussing Anchorman and showing it to your students and writing this book that there's a deeper meaning to Anchorman than just simply a film that's going to make people laugh. What <clears throat> what is the deeper meaning to Anchorman? I don't I don't necessarily want to say that there's one deeper meaning, but I wanted to kind of dig at the movie and find some of the. Um, kind of hidden rivers underneath it. So, for example, one of the things that I found particularly fascinating in doing my research was 
you know, realizing some of the ways in which Anchorman is a kind of shadow biopic of the 1970s um, newscaster Jessica Savage, uh, you know, who Savage was one of the first women to kind of play a key role in um, national television news. And there are lots of ways in which Veronica's story overlaps with Jessica Savage's story. And in fact, Anchorman, Anchorman's inspiration uh, comes from Will Ferrell kind of flipping channels at home one evening and coming across an A&E biography about Jessica Savage and hearing one of her fellow newscasters from the era, uh, a man named Mort Krim, say offhandedly that, you know, of course, it was the 1970s and we were all a bunch of male chauvinist pigs at the time. So I think I think that there's a lot in here, um, both about kind of the rising era of feminism and also about what television news is and how it does and does not actually share the news with us. Um, I think we see that even more clearly in the sequel and Anchorman 2. But even here, I think that there's some really clever and well-wrought comedy um, on just how little news there is in this hothouse world of television news. Did the and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Saul Austerlitz. His new book is kind of a big deal: how Anchorman stayed classy and became the most iconic comedy of the 21st century. Saul, did I know uh, you said that the idea came as they were, uh, you know, as Will Ferrell was flicking through the channels and he saw Mort Krim giving that discussion? Was the film always this level of satire? Did it start out as a bit more serious initially? No, on the contrary, it started out as being much more ludicrous. Um, you know, so like I had mentioned, it had this whole kind of plane crash uh, plot line to it in the first go around. And some of the, the response they got when they were showing the script around was, you know, you've written a Monty Python film, but you're not yet Monty Python. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, Judd Apatow, who was known at the time mostly for Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared, um, was brought in as a kind of script whisperer for them. And he encouraged them to, you know, have it be more character driven, make sure that the characters felt more human and more real and that we cared more about what happened to them. But at the same time, he was also encouraging them to really go further in their comedy. You know, so they had a kind of, um, stray line in their script talking about how, uh, the news, the newscasters would have a sort of anchorman showdown, uh, a la West Side Stories, rival gangs. And Apatow said to them, "Okay, what would this scene look like? What would actually happen in this scene if we had it?" And really encouraged them to kind of go big in certain spots as well. If you had to pick the elements of the TV news business in the 1970s that ring true the most to real life. What would you say the elements of the film that are most realistic are? So as I was doing my research, I came across a wonderful book by Ron Powers called The Newscasters, which is about this era of 1970s television news. And a lot of what Powers describes, we can see in the movie. Uh, He talks about how the television, the local news of the era was taken over by something he calls happy talk, where, you know, instead of actually reporting the news, um, the newscasters kind of banter about their weekend plans or their golf games or, you know, crack jokes about each other. And the the weatherman, you know, takes over five minutes of a 30 minute broadcast telling us about the weather for the weekend. And I think we really see a lot of that as well, the kind of vapidity um, that replaces mm. what used to be a more hard hitting news environment. 
And I think one of the interesting things that that I took note of is that the the narrator of the film is Bill Curtis, who is, you know, a Chicago local news legend who in his era did things like reported from Vietnam for the local news in Chicago. And he himself um, is someone who has talked at great length in the past about the ways in which television news and local news has been hollowed out. So I think it's fascinating that he also serves as the narrator here and, and is, you know, the person telling us the story. You mentioned Mort Krim. Is he the basis, if there is a basis, the, is he the real-life basis for Ron Burgundy? So it doesn't seem like there is any one real-life basis for Ron Burgundy, but the funny thing that has happened is that numerous newscasters, real-life newscasters, have come up to Will Ferrell and said, you know, just between the two of us, it's me that you based this on, right? And um, Will Ferrell told me that he had been doing errands in Beverly Hills one day, and a local Southern California newscaster named Harold Green had come up to him and said, it's me, right? <laughs> and when when Ferrell demurred and said, you know, no, it's, it's a little bit of everybody, Harold Green said something like, um, uh, and this reporter says, yeah, right and then walked away. So, you know, I think I think there's a little bit of everyone in there, enough for any newscaster with a healthy ego to find some of themselves in Ron Burgundy. Mort Krim believes that uh, he is the basis for, uh, he's one of those people uh, that is the basis for Ron Burgundy, and he's recreated that line. You stay classy, San Diego. Many times. Stay classy, San Diego. Is there anybody that had that as their signature sign-off? Not that I came across, but I'd be very curious to hear if that was taken from anywhere specific. I will know that in the original, in the earlier version of the script, San Diego had been initially scheduled to be Portland. And so there's an alternate universe <laughs> where, you know, whole, a whole generation of fraternity brothers walk around saying, stay classy Portland instead <laughs> of stay classy San Diego. Is, was there anything really surprising about the, uh, the making of this film itself? You mentioned how uh, there was much more tolerance for improv than there generally is. Beyond that, anything different from the making of, uh, I don't know, your average ordinary comedic film? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, the Anchorman showdown sequence is fascinating because, as someone described it, it was sort of like what would happen if an action movie broke out in the middle of our comedy. And I think it drew on skills that, you know, McKay didn't fully have yet, but it's a, it's a wonderfully shot sequence and it's really funny and also just really well done. Um, and I think a lot of the nuances in there are really clever. You know, McKay came away saying, the one thing I really want to have in this sequence is I want to make sure that there's a man on fire walking through this fight for absolutely no reason. Um, and so pulling that off was was part of what makes it wonderful. And and I think the, the funniest story that I came across about that sequence was that at the very end of it, you know, it was like a whole day, a whole day's shoot. It was very stressful and involved like 80 or 90 setups. And they came in the next morning, Farrell and McKay came in and they said, you know, they told, they said to each other, wouldn't it be funny if we sort of chewed everyone out about what a terrible job they had done the day before? And so they did that, assuming that everyone would kind of get the joke and chuckle, <laughs> like, obviously, we did a great job. But, you know, it being Hollywood and directors being what they are, everyone took it completely seriously. And so 
McKay kind of realizes halfway through the bit how poorly it's going. And as soon as they're finished, he he has to spend the entirety of the rest of the day going up to crew members and saying, I'm sorry, it was just a joke. You guys are doing an amazing <laughs> job. And everyone would tell him, you know, you thought it was a joke, but so-and-so director that I used to work for did exactly the same thing. And he wasn't joking at all. Did um, did they really approach Ted Koppel about having a role in this film? Yes, they approached Ted Koppel. And according to what McKay said, it was the fastest no they had ever received. <laughs> um, do you think you could still enjoy the book if you've not seen the film Anchorman? I hope so. I think it probably benefits from, from seeing the movie. Um, but yeah, I think it's a great story about how a terrific comedy gets made. Um, that I think is I, that I found fascinating to report and to sort of learn more about. And I think that that registers for anyone who cares about comedy or anyone who kind of loves to find out how how movies really get made. The um, you know, I'm a student of The Godfather and I'm always giving people little tidbits about The Godfather. You know, the Rheingold truck that's in the back of the fight scene, a bunch of other things that you wouldn't necessarily notice seeing the film once or twice unless someone points it out to you. Are there any Easter eggs within the film Anchorman that you could make our audience aware of that the next time they see this film, they're going to catch that and say, oh, my, I didn't catch that before. But uh, now I am hip to what's going on here. Any Easter eggs you could fill us in on? Yeah, I think one of the funnier ones has to do with the the improv aspect. Um, So one of the famous lines from the movie that comes from later on in the film is Will Ferrell as Ron Burgundy walking down the street, kind of beaten down and, and you know, in the doldrums and drinking milk on a hot day and saying to himself, milk was a bad choice. Milk was a bad choice. (laughs) And as it turns out, uh, Farrell told me that that was just a line that he was saying, like, to the cat, to the crew and to Adam McKay, essentially saying, like, I really don't want to be drinking this milk right now. But it came out so funny that uh, everyone loved it. And it ended up staying in the movie regardless. So I, I love that. It's just a little a little sort of hint of some of the ways in which the unexpected found its way into the movie. The um, Obviously, 20 years, popular tastes change, the way movies are made change. How do you think comedy has changed, specifically comedic cinema, in the 20 years since Anchorman was released? You know, I think the most notable thing is just the ways in which uh, it's become clear that Anchorman is representative of what now feels like a bygone era. You know, Anchorman either kicked off or was sort of a highlight um, in an era where comedies could still be massively successful hits, where they could find enormous audiences at the box office. And that era has come to an end, or at least, you know, is in a long hibernation. I was thinking about this in putting this book together. And, you know, the last comedy that I could think of where you felt like if you hadn't seen it, everyone was kind of talking about something that you were missing out on was Bridesmaids, Mm. which is already over a decade ago. And there are still some comedies that get made and there are still some comedies that become hits. But I think that the, you know, the way in which the movies have kind of been overrun by intellectual property and, you know, Marvel and Star Wars and all the like, and the ways in which um, the movies have become because of those choices have become ever more um, lean ever more on international box office where comedy doesn't travel as well. I think each of those things has 
has kind of diminished the allure of comedy. And so comedy no longer entirely feels like a, like a healthy genre of contemporary filmmaking. And, and I think, you know, when you think about the kinds of performers who still star in, in film comedies, it's still the people from this previous generation, like Farrell, like Ben Stiller, like Melissa McCarthy, even like Seth Rogen. And, you know, none of these are young stars anymore. And so I think the whole next generation of gifted comedic performers have mostly headed towards television because there have just been more opportunities mm. there. Uh, talking with Saul Austerlitz, his book is kind of a big deal, how Anchorman stayed classy and became the most iconic comedy of the 21st century. I really enjoyed uh, the sequel, Anchorman 2, and I, I thought it was really a great a great way to uh, uh, hold a mirror up to the silliness of what was going on in cable news at that time. I feel like a lot of people ragged on the sequel, though, and didn't like it. What was your view of the sequel? I mostly agree with you. I think it's better than its reputation has it. Um, I think it's not as good as the first film, but I think it has a lot of wonderful jokes in it. I think it it's, goes even further down the road of sort of being very clearly a critique of the world of news, right? It's, it's set in sort of the dawn of the cable news era, and it's very specifically about the ways in which cable news has led us astray. You know, I think there are parts of Anchorman, too, that just don't work for me personally, like... You know, there's a whole segment where Ron uh, goes blind and lives in a lighthouse and becomes friends with, you know, various ocean animals. And like in describing it, it sounds really funny. It doesn't make me laugh. Yeah, yeah, really I, I hear you. Yeah. That's, uh, that's but, fair. But yeah, but there's lots of terrific stuff in that movie as well. And I think all of these movies, all of the Farrell McKay collaborations, the more times you watch them, the funnier they get. They're movies that, that, that sort of are served well by revisiting them. If you had to pick a favorite line in a film full of great lines, what do you think your favorite line is in Anchorman? I picked it for the title, and you had sort of referenced it earlier, but I do love when uh, Ron tells Veronica that he's kind of a big deal. And that, you know, his his apartment is filled up, you know, smells of rich mahogany. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> that that feels like a wonderful line from the movie. Um, what is, if Anchorman is the most iconic comedy of the 21st century, in your opinion, what's the most iconic comedy of the 20th? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm a real partisan of Charlie Chaplin, so I'm, I'm going to go way back and pick one of the classics and say, you know, I think Chaplin um, is still the all-time great when it comes to comedy and was was and you know was probably the most famous person in the world at the time at the height of his fame. And I love the movie City Lights. I think it's it's you know just an all-time classic masterpiece. Um, just a beautiful example of what comedy can do and how it can make us laugh and cry and feel emotional all at once. And, and Chaplin is just peerless as a comedian. So, yeah, that that's a movie that, that feels really special to me. Last question, Saul Austerlitz, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time so late at night. Will we ever know what San Diego really means? <laughs> You know, the researchers are still working on it, and I'm hoping that one day we'll we'll get a definitive answer about what San Diego is. Uh, thank you very much, Saul Austerlitz. Best of luck with the book. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. 
If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to check out the book we've been talking about, it's kind of a big deal, How Anchorman Stayed Classy and Became the Most Iconic Comedy of the 21st Century. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.